So if you have your Bibles, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12, and let me read it for you as you follow along. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at a proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken away. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy the, by the power, splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but who have delighted in evil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look at this passage and we are reminded that there is another force that is at work, a force that is not material, a force that is not just physical, but a force that is spiritual in nature. And this is the force that governs all of, of reality, all of humanity. It's the cosmic reality. And so often, Father, we are misled into thinking that this world is all we have. But in reality, this world is only the stage in which uh, the outworking of your great plan is at work. So, Father, we ask that you would guide us as we look into your word and help us to have a deeper understanding of what it means to know you and to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a little bit of sound feedback. Okay. Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been deceived? Has ever somebody ever uh, uh, put a scam or, or a fraud uh, using you as sort of the object of deception? In other words, uh, uh, have you sort of been defrauded in some way? Somebody used your identity to buy something or, or to purchase or maybe even to pretend that you were that person. Uh, in our culture, there are terms like catfishing now. Uh, when people are dating, there's a whole show about people who pretended to be somebody they're not. Uh, we hear things like role calling, and it's so common among, often when we hear of uh, people calling you, if you've ever received that phone call. Uh, this past uh, few weeks ago, I received a phone call from the IRS saying I owe them all this money and that, uh, that I'm going to be criminally charged. And usually those kinds of calls are in, in, from a foreign uh, country with a foreign accent. Well... The reality is that all of us are susceptible to what we call identity theft. Last year, uh, 14.4 million people fell into identity theft, stealing money, credit cards, and your driver's license. And the deception in in our day is becoming harder to detect. And part of it is that there's elaborate sort of uh, uh, schemes that people have, especially they pry on people's compassion and good-heartedness and gullibility. Uh, A few months ago, I was at a conference, 
And at the conference, I got an email from one of our, a couple of our staff saying, Pastor Ray, we heard about your financial situation. Uh, are you doing okay? And so we had all these, uh, apparently just my staff got the re- email because somebody had uh, either logged into my email account or had taken one of the, uh, the email lists of my particular staff and it went all out to anybody that had an ambassadorchurch.com email. Well, uh, one person did actually re- respond. Uh, they uh, gave $300 to me. Now, the sad, funny thing was, was that wasn't me sending the email. Uh, it was somebody else pretending to be me. And that person, out of the genuineness and the compassion of their heart, decided to donate $300 to me. Uh, I was a little bit distraught, not just because uh, this person gave, but so many of my staff didn't give. So <laughs> I was wondering, what's up with that? Well, anyway, that's another story. But, but the reality is that, that, that all of us, at some point, are susceptible uh, to being misled. Um, recently, uh, even in terms of um, my uh, car was broken into, and when my car was broken into, uh, they took uh, my wallet. It had, it was actually uh, a cell phone case that was uh, that I left the night before, and and again for the first two three weeks of that week, I had to make all these phone calls because I was getting all these emails and letters that somebody had taken uh, my account and opened up other credit cards. Well. Those kinds of things are not a 21st century problem. It's actually accentuated because we have this internet issue that all of our, uh, everything is wired, whether it's email, Facebook, uh, mobile phones, and computers. But the reality of this sort of identity theft goes all the way back to the very beginning. That there is deception that's going on. And especially in the church in the first century, uh, there were people coming into the church that were sort of pretending to be true teachers and true apostles. And we know this in the New Testament, that the number one warning that the Bible gives to us is to be aware. Be aware of these false teachers, false prophets. They come as wolves, uh, angels of light, deceivers, antichrist. So we see all these words that are used in scripture. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verse 17 warns the disciples. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In Acts chapter 20 verse 9, uh, Paul says the same thing. He uses the analogy of wolves. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Over and over again, the Bible warns us against these false teachers. And if you think about the way in which the church is destroyed, it's never destroyed by external persecution. The reality is that the church is often destroyed internally by false teachers teaching a false doctrine. Almost every New Testament book deals with the subject of false teachers. And sadly, one of the most gullible people are well-meaning religious people. In other words, religious people are the ones who are more susceptible uh, to these things, especially among people that are kind of wanting God to work in their life. And so they fall prey to these false teachers and oftentimes to their own destruction. Uh, During the 1970s, there was a man who started a church in San Francisco called People's Temple. His name was Jim Jones. And more than 
900 of his followers moved out of the United States, went to a place called Guyana, and in 1978 did the most unbelievable act. 900 people committed suicide. All because this false teacher misled them. The FBI recorded, uh, recovered a 45-minute audio recording of the suicide in process. It's disturbing. It's demonic. And if you listen to it, one of the things he does, he urges in this sermon that he preaches of his followers to deny their earthly life for a heavenly life. He misleads 900 people. Well, Jim Jones is not is one of the most extreme examples of spiritual deception, but he's not alone. Let me take a, another. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. This one? <clears throat> Got it? Thank you. So Jim Jones is not only an example of spiritual deception in our day. Uh, we see this all the way throughout history. People come proclaiming to be Christ, misleading and deceiving people. Well, as Paul is now writing in this book, he's warning the church, especially in this particular book, against these spiritual leaders that are coming. And he warns them about this whole uh, group called the man of lawlessness. So if we look at chapter 2, last week, uh, Pastor Mike talked about this. He said this, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and of being gathered uh, to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily unsettled or alarmed by these prophet, prophecies, report or letters supposed to come from us saying that the day of the Lord has come. There were some people that had come into the church, that had infiltrated the church, that were causing people chaos and, and, and confusion. And part of the confusion was that Christ had already come, that he has already established his kingdom. And so these people were trying to figure out what's happening if Christ has already come, then what's happening to my life now? And so Paul's warning to them is these people are, are, are false teachers. And he describes this, this person, uh, this person to be revealed as the man of lawlessness. Well, in chapter uh, 2, verses uh, 5 through the uh, rest of the verse, in verse 12, Paul now begins to unveil behind this man of lawlessness is the true deceiver. And that's Satan himself. And so in this particular section of scripture, we are going to see uh, this role that Satan will play in, in, in future history. That he will come to deceive and to destroy God's work. But as we look into the future, there are three key roles that we have to uh, see. That there is a role for the, for the Holy Spirit in the church. There's the role of Jesus. And then finally, there's the role of Satan himself. So this morning, I want to kind of give you sort of the, the background on this. And we're going to look at the first, as we look at the spiritual deception, what is the role of the church and the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to spiritual deception? Look at verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you about these things. Now, Paul is talking about what he had just mentioned regarding the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist coming. He says, I instructed you on this. And verse 6, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at his proper time. For the secret power of the lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken away. So the question is this, that Paul is saying that this person will be coming, 
but this person hasn't come yet. But what's holding him back is this entity or this sort of group or this person that is restraining evil. So the first question you would ask is this, who is holding back the sort of the, the, the evil that is to come? And as you look at the, the commentators and, 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 uh, and sort of follow all the way through the Old Testament, the key entity or the key person is the Holy Spirit. At the Holy Spirit, one of his primary roles is to hold back the work of Satan. In other words, if you think about this, some of us uh, sort of have this imagination that Satan is just kind of running loose doing anything he wants. Actually, he is being restrained by the Holy Spirit. And so what is the church then? The church is what we humanly embody the Holy Spirit. So the Bible describes the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So our role in this present age is to hold back evil. When I thought about this in verse uh, 5, in verse to verse 7, that really if you think about what is holding back evil all the way in the Old Testament, it was God himself. That God didn't allow Satan to do what he wanted to do, but he held him back all the way down in, in Genesis chapter three, uh, 6, verse 3. We see that in the time of, uh, time of Noah, that God was restraining sin before judgment. We also see this in the book of Job, that when uh, Satan comes to God and makes a proposition, he says, you know this guy, Job, Lord, you're protecting him. And the reason you're protecting him is, is and that's why he's not denying you. Let me at it. Let me get at him, and then I bet you he'll deny you. And so we see it sort of behind the scenes that God allows Satan to go a little bit beyond uh, what he has been able to go beyond. And Satan causes havoc in Job's life. And all the way through, he loses his property, he loses his family, he loses everything. Physically, he has all these sores and boils. And at the end of the book, instead of Job denying God. He actually reaffirms his commitment to God. And he's blessed with, with double the blessing. But the thing about that book that's interesting is this. That God is the ultimate restrainer of evil. It could get a lot worse. And here's the thing about as we approach the second coming of Christ. Little by little, things will get worse. Evil will become more rampant. And when the Holy Spirit and when the church is eventually taken away, then evil will then become rampant. So I thought about the role of the church. So what is our role in this present age? It's interesting that Jesus uses the analogy of two uh, uh, things. He says, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. In verse uh, 13 of chapter 5 of uh, Matthew, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. One of the key analogies that Jesus uses to describe the role of the church is to be salt. Now, what is salt? Well, why did Jesus use the metaphor of salt for the church? Well, if you think about salt in the ancient Near East, it was one of the most important commodities. Um, one commentator said this, salt has always been valuable in human society, often much more so than it is today. Uh, during the period of the ancient Greeks, it was called upon, uh, it was actually considered divine. The Romans held that except for the sun, nothing was more valuable than salt. 
So often Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And it was from this practice that the expression, he's not worth his uh, weight in uh, or, or he's not worth his salt, originated from. It was valuable because salt served many purposes. One of the purposes that it saw was that it, it allowed to add flavor to what you were eating. But more than the flavor was the preservative nature of salt. In other words, what salt did was, because they had no refrigeration, that they would salt things and then they would uh, uh, put it on the ground. It would allow food to be preserved longer. D.A. Carson, uh, New Testament scholar, writes, In the ancient world, salt was primarily a preservative. Since they didn't own uh, refrigerators, people used salt to preserve many foods. Incidentally, of course, salt also helps with the flavor. In other words, the role of the church is to preserve, to delay the decay and the contamination of the world around us. And so really as the church, that we are to be salt and light, to be a good influence in our culture. We are the ones who are promoting good for, for society. But once the church is taken away, that's when we see Satan allowing uh, to do his, his work. By the way, one of the things of, of societal collapse, that's interesting. Many years ago, there was a, a historian named Edward Gibbon. And he wrote the book called Decline uh, and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he attributed certain characteristics to the decline of Rome. Uh, number one, he says, the rapid increase of divorce, the undermining dignity of, of the home. Number two, higher and higher taxes uh, uh, separating the wealthy from the poor. A mad craze for pleasure. Uh, a building of gigantic ornaments uh, when the real enemy was within, the decadence of the people. And lastly, he says this, the decay of religion. In other words, when society falls, oftentimes society doesn't fall because of external uh, pressure. Often it falls because of the internal decay. And the role of the church is to be salt in our culture. And so, so what, what he says here is interesting in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, he says, and now you know that what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at his proper time. And when I think about the role of the church in our present day, uh, not only are we to be preservers, if you think about this, that we are to actually promote the common good for society. That, that as we do that, that we are actually making society better and we are restraining evil from continuing to grow. But what has happened, though, is the opposite. And I believe that Satan's number one strategy is not necessarily to persecute the church out of existence. The number one strategy that Satan uses is to decay the church from within. And so he brings in these false prophets, false teachers, to mislead the people of God. And when people of God are misled, then their values, their theology, their morality all change. And if the church is destroyed, it loses its saltiness. And when it loses its saltiness, as Jesus says, it's worthless. So we see that the church and the Holy Spirit have a role to play. That we are the, we are the preservers of, of God's um, kingdom and uh, God's rule here on earth. But the second thing that's interesting here is that Christ is now given a role here in terms of, of, of spiritual deception. And here's the role of Christ. Uh, verse 8. And when the lawlessness is, uh, when the lawlessness one will be revealed, when the Lord Jesus will, be, will overthrow from the breath of his mouth and destroy the splendor of his coming. 
Here's the good news, right? That the role of Christ is to conquer the kingdom of darkness. In other words, when the lawlessness eventually will be revealed, uh, when that Antichrist at, at, at some point will come into history, the good news is this, that Christ will ultimately be victorious. The role of the second coming reminds us that he is the ultimate uh, breaker of, of all bondage, of all sin, that he conquers both sin and darkness as well as death. And really, the only one who could break us out of our prison is somebody who is outside of us. Uh, in many years ago, there was a, a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, who was in prison, in a Nazi prison. And in 1943, a few weeks before uh, Christmas, he wrote his friend this. He says, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be open from the outside. He says, isn't that a great picture of the advent? In other words, the only one that could free us is not somebody who is in bondage. The only one that could free us is somebody who is outside of, of bondage. And that's the thing that, that this passage reminds us, is that ultimately, that Christ will be victorious. But you see, we don't stop there. Here's where I think a lot of Christians kind of stop at a theology of es eschatology, where we look at Christ's second coming, and say, okay, well, Christ will um, make us victorious. But here's the other reality, that Christ makes us victorious here and now. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, uh, Jesus is preaching a sermon in the synagogue. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release the oppressed. And then in verse 21, he sits down and he says, this scripture is fulfilled to you today. Christ has the power to release us today on the, from the bondage of sin and darkness. See, one of the great things is this, that, that when you follow Christ, there is nothing that gives us freedom and liberty than Christ himself. He is the one that breaks us from the bondage of ourselves. You see, Satan's number one deception is not that, you know, he, he wants us to fear him and he wants us uh, to sort of uh, deny God. That's, that wasn't his number one deception. His number one deception was simply this, that you can be God. That you can be like God and that you have control and power over your own life. And so what Satan does is he deceives mankind, humanity into thinking that we really have control. But what he, we don't realize is everything that we consume Everything that we participate starts to enslave us. The reality is this, that the only thing that can give us liberty is Jesus himself. Oswald Chambers uh, in his devotional said this, that the spirit of God is always the spirit of liberty. The spirit that is not of God is a spirit of bondage, of oppression, and depression. The Spirit of God convicts vividly and tensely, but He's always a Spirit of liberty. God who made birds never made bird cages. It is men who make bird cages, and after a while we become cramped and can do nothing but chirp and stand on one leg. When we get into God's great free life, we discover that it is the way God meant us to live. Glorious liberty of the children of God. See, being a follower of Jesus gives us the freedom to break any bondage and oppression that oppresses us. 
And that's the thing that we have to remember and celebrate because here's the thing that I always say. That Jesus did not come uh, to fix your brokenness. Jesus came to transform your brokenness into something greater and better. There was a, a little boy who loved trees. And this little boy uh, grew up and he lived in a small farm in the midst of a great forest. And every day before the sun would set, his evening chore was to go out and, and, and look at the edge of the clearing and walk around and just wonder at the, all, at, at, at the oaks and the pines. And one day, he noticed a small little tree that was growing, a pine, struggling toward the light. He could tell it was struggle was great because a small tree beginning to, was starting to grow at an angle. So this little boy dug up this, this tree and, and looked for a place under the canopy of the forest and planted it in the edge of the clearing so it could get sunlight. And then he fashioned two straight poles from the branches of another pine tree and he placed it on either side, hoping that this tree would start, this little pine would start growing straight and tall. Every day, this little boy would go to that little tree and, and look at it and, and do whatever he could to take care of it. This little tree became so, or this boy became so attached to the tree. But what he didn't notice was that his father also saw what he was doing. So the father would go and, and come out and, and spread a little fertilizer. He would examine it for insects, so he would put an insecticide. The father knew the value of, of learning to care for something. And so he was helping his little boy grow that tree. One day, as the boy was uh, looking at the tree to go back to, to take care of his little tree, he realized that the tree had toppled over. A bear had come and leaned upon this tree, and this tree was broken, and it was, it was on the ground. So this little boy grabbed this broken tree, went to his father, and said, Dad, Dad, can you fix this tree? You can fix anything. Get this tree back up. And so the father said... Let me, do, let me see what I can do. So he took the, the broken tree and went to his wood shop. And this little boy waited. He was tormented all day by the expectation of hoping to see that broken tree be fixed again. He went to his father and he says, Dad, Dad, did you save the tree? And the father said it was too late to save the tree. The damage was too great. And the boy began to weep. And, and the father put his large callous hands upon this little boy and said, follow me. Let me show you what happened. So the, so the father led this crying boy to the shop. And the father pointed to the workbench. He says, there's your tree. The boy looked up in wonder and said, that's my tree? Yes, said the father. And the boy's sorrow turned to joy as he held this little train that his father had made from the tree. His father had transformed this tragedy into triumph by carving that small tree into an engine, two boxcars and a caboose. The father had taken a lifeless, broken tree and transformed it into something that was miraculous for that little boy. When I read that story, it reminded me, that's what Jesus does. Jesus does not come to just fix a broken tree, to fix your brokenness. He comes to transform you. That there is in Christ a new creation that the old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And that's the work of, of Christ's victory. That's the work in which the kingdom of darkness is overshadowed by the kingdom of life. The kingdom of light is always greater. And here's the point that the Bible makes. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, what Satan deceives us into thinking 
that he, his power is greater. And so we sort of trap ourselves in this bondage thinking that we have no hope. But I want you to notice the role of Satan. And if you think about what Satan does, let me tell you his main objective. Sometimes uh, we have this sort of view of Satan in our society that is over uh, glamorized, right? We have this sort of this red demon it, with pitchforks in hell. And, and, and a lot of us fear uh, sort of demonic stories. We fear this, this entity called Satan. But the reality is that Satan often doesn't look like that. Another popular image in our culture is now uh, Satan has been transformed, or Lucifer, into a television star. Uh, if you've watched this show called Lucifer, he's now come down to earth, and he's now helping a detective solve murder <laughs> mysteries. It's like, wow, we have elevated Satan to be a hero. But the reality in the Bible is this, that the role of Satan is not necessarily to scare us or to worship him. But the role of Satan in society is he comes as an angel of light. He comes to deceive us. Notice what he says here in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawlessness will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In other words, Satan's main job is to be a counterfeit, is to deceive, is to steal your identity, is to cause uh, havoc in your life. And if you think about what Satan is, that's what he does. The very first sin was a sin of deception. He tells this young creation that God made, Adam and Eve, and says, you can be like God. Because what Adam didn't realize was Satan fell from heaven because of that. There are two extreme dangers that I think we have to be aware of when it comes to the role of Satan in society. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, either we avoid Satan or we overemphasize his role. There are two equal and opposite extremes into which uh, we can race, uh, we, we can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his ex existence and the other is to believe and to feel an excess an unhealthy interest in them. They are themselves equally pleased by both errors. In other words, the two extremes are both dangerous. One is to ignore his work. The other is to overemphasize his work. Sometimes living in our, our scientific modern society, we kind of uh, ignore and we just kind of laugh off the role of Satan in society. And yet he is the the master behind, he is the sort of the puppeteer behind the scenes, controlling governments, tr controlling leaders. Everything that we see has some influence by the demonic powers. He is the God of this present age that the Bible describes. We can never underestimate the role of Satan in society. Ironically, uh, one of the Supreme Court justices uh, a few years ago who passed away, Anthony Sc Scalia, uh, gave an interview in New York Magazine. And he said something interesting. He says, do you believe in the devil? Somebody asked him. And he says, of course. He's a real person. And he says, have you seen evidence of the devil lately? The interviewer asked. He says, you know what? It is curious. In the gospel, the devil is doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't happen very much anymore because he's very smart. So what is he doing now? 
the interviewer asked. What he's doing now is he's getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. I mean, come on. That's the explanation for why there are not all these demonic people in the world. That always puzzle me. What happened to the devil? He says, well, the devil is basically, he's smart. He knows what he's doing. And his job is to primarily deceive the people of God and all of humanity in elevating themselves to be like God. I think the greatest sin in the Bible is not the sin of all the things that we think of. We think of lust, we think of murder, we think of stealing. All those are secondary sins. The greatest sin, the greatest deception is that you don't need God. That you are God. That everything you possess is, is, is divine. And as a result, our culture has, it's not a culture of atheism where God doesn't exist. It's a, uh, it's a, a God in which we have elevated ourselves as God. And so Satan comes to deceive. So the question is, is what does he ultimately, what, what ends up with Satan? If you look at verse 10 and 11, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth. In other words, God is still ultimately in control of everything. There is no war between God and Satan in the sense that they're equal powers. God is ultimately allowing this to fulfill his great plan. Now, so how do you deal with deception? The last thing is this. That the way you deal with deception is to not know every deception. Because if you did that, it, it, it would take millions of years to figure out all the deception. And, and so often we as Christians can easily fall into this. We study this, we study that. And all these things that we study really doesn't help us understand the thing that we need to study. And this is what the Bible says, that we need to understand truth. In other words, what allows us to understand deception is that the more we understand truth the more we understand what it's a counterfeit. Uh, there was an uh, uh, FBI who's, uh, agent who was training another FBI agent on identifying counterfeit bills. And so this young agent started to look at every counterfeit and started to analyze all the different counterfeit bills out there. And the, F, uh, the, the older agent looked at him and said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm looking at all these different counterfeits so I can identify counterfeits. Well, let me teach you. Instead of doing that, let me teach you how to actually identify counterfeits. So he took out the real thing. He says, I want you to study the real thing. Know it, feel it, smell it. Because if you know the truth, then you, anything else that's wrong, it will be easily identified. I think for a Christian, that's exactly what the Bible says. That instead of trying to figure out what is wrong, that the more we know what is right, the more we understand what is wrong. And so the key to that is God's word. The antidote to deception is truth. Human reasoning is not alone to discern truth from error. The best protection against deception is God's revelation, God's truth. And one of the things about knowing God's truth is not only do you know it, you also begin to live it. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
So I want to encourage you, as you think about this, is that there are three major players in, in, in the soul cosmic universe. There's the Holy Spirit in the church. There's the role of Jesus. And then there's the role of Satan. And here's the good news. That Jesus has conquered all of that. That he, there's nothing to fear. That Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And ultimately he will conquer the work of the devil. So as Christians we have confidence and hope. That no matter what you're going through in your life. No matter what bondage that you're in. No matter what oppression you're in. That the hope is that Jesus is the one that can break the chains of our lives. Right, let's pray.